This is the Radio Bible Class, and I'm your host, Tim Carter. We welcome you to our Bible study as the Radio Bible Class streams across the nation and around the world. We bring to you a message how Christ ministers to his disciples after the resurrection. We greet you on the internet and radio with a message that Jesus is alive today. Now, today's lesson is titled, I Am the Resurrection and the Life, and it comes from John 11, 1 through 44. But before we start our lesson today, Word Talking could use your support. Now, playing music on the radio may sound simple, but actually it's quite costly due to publishing rights and royalties. And before that first song is replayed, there's utility bills and tower rental fees and maintenance and so forth. We need people just like you to help with the tax-deductible gifts. So won't you do that today? You can do that by calling us at 601-483-8648. There they can take your information safely and securely over the phone. Or mail us your gift to Word Talk, Inc., P.O. Box 4334, Meridian, Mississippi, 39304. Now, your gift to Word Talk, Inc. is IRS-approved as a 501c3 tax-exempt ministry. Your contribution is never used for salaries or managerial purposes, but 100% of it goes to the expense providing the good news of Jesus Christ to our listening area. Hebrews 13.16 says, Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Now, if you'd like to go back and listen to a previous lesson, you can do that by going to our podcast website. That's Radio Bible Class with no space between radiobibleclass.podbean.com or catch us wherever you listen to your podcast, whether that's Amazon or Google or iTunes or Spotify. We're there too. Just search for WMER, Radio Bible Class with no space between Radio Bible Class. Well, today we pick back up in our I Am series. We're in week five, and today we look at I Am the Resurrection and the Life. We've already looked at the first one, which was, I am the bread of life. There, Jesus reminded the people about the nation of Israel and how God provided for them. And they, he gave them manna every day, their, their daily bread. And he says, I am your daily bread. I'm all that you need. I will provide for you. Eat of me. Eat me, my flesh. Then we saw that he said, I am the light of the world. And he talked about how light exposes things. It exposes the darkness. It exposes our path. And if we follow him and we have the light in us, we are like a lighthouse. We show out to a dark and dying world and we need that light. And then we looked at he's the door. Our society today says there's many ways to God, but Jesus says, I am the door. I am the gate. And he talked about the sheep and how the sheep go into a sheep pen and that how thieves tried to come over and steal, how the thief comes to rob, steal, and kill. But the true shepherd goes through the door and the sheep go through the door. There's only one way is what Jesus was saying. And then we saw last week that he was the good shepherd. We looked at all the different traits of sheep and how we are like sheep and how Jesus is our shepherd and he takes care of us. And like Psalms 23, how he leads us beside still water and how leads us through the valley of the shadow of death. But we don't fear that because we're following the good shepherd. Well, today we pick up and we look at one of the most beloved stories in the Bible. I mean, really not a story, a recorded time in history, something that happened in history, because we know that the Bible isn't a bunch of stories. They are a bunch of stories, but it's really history written, written down. But Jesus, in this passage of scripture shows compassion and tenderness and he shows all that in a response to a very sad and tragic event that happens the untimely death of his close personal friend named Lazarus through this tragic event though Jesus states I am again that is he is God and don't let anybody tell you that Jesus never explicitly said that he was God he wasn't God he says it seven times in the book of John he says I am 
And that's the same I am that we see in the book of Exodus when God told Moses who to say he was, who sent him when he went to Pharaoh. It's those same words. He says, I am. And then he describes himself with his character. And like I said, the bread of life, the light of the world, the door, then the good shepherd, and today the resurrection of life. And he says that in John 11, 25 and 26, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. So with that said, turn with me to the book of John, chapter 11. We'll start in verse 1. I'm not going to read every single verse. I'm probably going to allude to several verses as we go through this. And I'm going to point out several things concerning death and several things of the characteristic of Jesus. Because that's what this is. Who does Jesus think he is? And here he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Well, the first verse starts off, Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, and his sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is only for the glory of God so that the Son of Man may be glorified through it. And we're going to stop right there for now. Let's unpack this first couple of verses. First, a quick brief background. One, I want you to understand that this story or this particular passage is only in this particular gospel. It's not in the other three. This is only in John's gospel. And then this took place in the town of Bethany. For those that study the Bible and love to hear about Hebrew or Greek, in Bethany in Hebrew means house of the poor. Now, the other thing we need to understand, there are three people. Martha is listed first, and she is thought to be the oldest, because back in those days, they would list them by age. So it was Martha, then Mary, and then Lazarus was thought to be the youngest. We never hear about their parents. Their parents are thought to be dead. And so this would make sense and follow with why they're living in the house of the poor. Here are three grown children, brothers and sisters living together, trying to make ends meet. And anyhow, they are living in the house of the poor or in the poor section. The other thing I want to point out is that Mary, Martha, and Lazarus were close personal friends of Jesus. And we even see that when they send for Jesus, they say the one you love, Lazarus, is sick. And if you look back at verse 3, you see that. They say, Lord, him who you love is ill. But Jesus responds to this when he is told about this illness, that it's not going to lead to death. It's all for the glory of God. Some folks say that this is a contradiction. The Bible contradicts itself. And what Jesus is saying is, yes, he's going to die, but I'm going to raise him again. He prophetically says this doesn't lead to death, ultimate death. Yeah, he dies. They bury him, but I'm going to raise him again. It's just nobody knows that. So there is no contradiction right there in verse 4. Because he finishes it, it is for the glory of God, so the Son of God may be glorified through it. And what he's really saying, and we're going to see this, is that, hey, it'd be okay if I go and heal him from being ill, but I want God to get the ultimate glory by raising him from the dead. And then we see in verse 5, now, Jesus loved Martha and his sister and Lazarus. I want to point that out. If you go look at that word love right there, it, again, in the Greek, is agape. It is the ultimate sacrificial love. Jesus really loved this family. But when the messenger comes, Jesus waits two days. 
And we see that in verse 6. So when he had heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days. I want to point something else out. This does not show that Jesus doesn't love Martha and Mary and Lazarus. Sometimes we think when we don't get an immediate answer from God that he doesn't love us. He won't respond to me. I've done something wrong. But sometimes God waits. His timing is perfect. And he does that because he wants a ultimate glory. He wants a better glory than you and I think he should get. We think if he just fixes our problem, he's going to get glory out of it. But he sees the bigger picture. And sometimes we have to wait because he wants a better glorification. And that's what happens here. If you're going to tweet a statement about this, you could tweet, God's delay is often for his display. See, Jesus delays coming to Bethany to allow Lazarus to die so that he could perform an evil greater miracle than healing Lazarus from that illness. He had healed plenty of people from being sick, but only three people did he raise from the dead. And here's an opportunity for him to get even a greater miracle to happen in front of the Jewish people. But I want to make sure that you don't misinterpret that God's not answering your prayer at the moment you want him to as that he doesn't love you. I could see where Mary and Martha might think this very same thing. We see that in their response. Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I want you to understand that Jesus works on his own time, and his delay is often for his display. The other thing I want you to remember, as I've taught in other lessons, and you can go back and listen to them, is that God is always on time. God is never late. God is never early. God's timing is perfect. He is always on time. God shows up according to his timetable in a way that is most edifying to him and ultimately to us too. But we don't see it that way because the focus in that moment is not on him, it's on us. And sometimes God has to delay what we expect. God has to change our expectation so that we can get our focus off us and back on him so that the edification is on him and he gets the most glory. The other thing I want you to notice about Jesus is that he doesn't panic. He is calm and he's collected. If my best friend is sick and about to die, he's ill to death, I'm probably panicking about this. Once we get bad news, we panic. When we have to make a deadline and we don't see how we're going to make it, we panic. But I want you to see that Jesus doesn't panic. If you go out through the whole Gospels, you'll see that Jesus is never frantic. He's never anxious about anything. When the storm came on the sea and he's in the boat, where is he? He's down in the boat asleep. He's not panicking over that. When there's 5,000 people to be fed, he doesn't panic. He says, hey, we need to feed these people. What have we got? And then he makes a miracle happen. Jesus never frantics and he's never anxious. And we need to remember that. We want to be like Jesus we need to understand we got to put our trust in Jesus, and it's through him we shouldn't panic and we shouldn't be frantic. As a matter of fact, the Bible tells us in Philippians 4, 6, and 7, be anxious for nothing. And how do you do that? But in everything by prayer and supplication. By putting our faith in Jesus and having more prayer time and more supplication and thanksgiving with Jesus, then we become less anxious. The more we commune with God, the more we're immune from fear. The more we commune with God, the more we're immune from anxiety. The things of this world that will bring fear and anxiety, 
We are immune to it when we're communing with God, when our focus is on God, when our trust is on God. And I know some of you out there are going, well, Tim, I trust God. But God just doesn't get it right now. I need this and I need it right away. Well, actions speak louder than words. What are your actions saying? Because that's what you really believe. We act out what we believe. We say stuff that we don't really believe sometimes. And so we need to be more like Jesus who never panicked and was never anxious. But not only is that true right here, but let's continue looking at this passage. Then after the two days, in verse 7, it says, Then after this, he said to his disciples, Let us go to Judea again. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going to go there again? Who's panicking? Not Jesus. Jesus saying, I don't care about the Pharisees. I don't care about those that are threatened to stone me. They're saying, Rabbi, wait, the Jews are ready to kill you. And Jesus says, are there not 12 hours in a day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, but he sees the light of the world. There we go again about the light of the world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. And after saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. And the disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. In other words, Lord, if he's asleep, the best medicine for, for being sick is sleep. Their doctor will tell you that all the time. And he's like, well, hold on, because he says this right here in verse 14. Then Jesus told them, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas called the twins, said to his fellow disciples, let us go that we may die with him. Now, again, he's talking about going through Judea. He's not thinking that Jesus is going to go down there and die. He's worried that he's going to get stoned to death trying to get to Lazarus. Now, in verse 17, now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. So there we see that it's been four days since Lazarus had died. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles. So again, he's two miles from Jerusalem. He's on his way to the cross. And this act is some foreshadowing of what's going to happen on the cross. The death of Jesus and then him being raised again. But he's on his way to Jerusalem. And Bethany's two miles away. And many of these Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Now I want you to see, too, that uh, many cultures... Throughout history, support that people, when there's a death, they would come and they would support those that they love. And in Judaism, immediately following the loss, they would stay for days. and They would sit on the floor and even they would have a meal. And then normally the person would be buried the same day that they died. There was no waiting. There was no wake. They were buried immediately. There is quite a bit of commentary around there's evidence back in the first century, that the Jews believed that the soul of that deceased person hovered around the body for three days, seeking to re-enter that person. But on the fourth day, when the spirit saw that there was decomposition starting to begin, then it would leave and go to Sheol. And this is important for us to understand why the fourth day was here. Jesus timed his arrival to coincide with the conclusion after the first three days of this intense mourning. And then after the body and the, the soul has gone back, now he truly does resurrect Lazarus. 
The other custom that they had was when someone died, the Jews for seven days would sit on the floor of their house and all the visitors would visit them there. And that was called Shiva. And it means seven days. And so Mary is staying and she's practicing this, but Martha breaks this custom and she goes to Jesus. And we see that in verse 20. It says, so when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Can you hear the emotion that is in her statement to Jesus? She's saying, Lord, we believe that you are the Christ. We believe that you're the Messiah. We believe that you can heal the sick. And she's letting her emotion take over. And she's almost blaming Jesus that if you had been here, he wouldn't have died. Have you ever been in this boat? Have you ever felt like Jesus let you down? Have you ever felt like Martha and Mary, we're going to see in a minute, says the exact same thing to him, that you let us down? But I think out of emotion, they say this hurtful thing to Jesus, and they're kind of blaming Jesus for his death. If you'd have come when we told you to come, he wouldn't be dead. Sometimes we get angry at God because it didn't go the way we thought it should go. We're going to see later that he delayed for a ultimate purpose. And we talked about God's timing. But here we see emotion ruling their life. And I want you to pick up on this, that Jesus, though, wasn't driven by emotion. He was guided by devotion to the Father. He knew that the Father needed the glorification. He knew the Father's purpose was for glorification of raising Lazarus from the dead. So he didn't allow emotion of the man he loved, of the family he loved, of the sisters he loved, because we saw that in verse 5, that agape love, he didn't allow emotions to make him do an impulsive thing. It didn't make him say a regrettable thing like we probably heard Martha say to Jesus, that we hear Mary say. I can't tell you how many times that I've let emotions let me say things and do things that I regretted later. Emotions will make you do irrational things. It will even make you abandon the truth that you know. I know of some very good youth that went to church that got in a situation in the heat of the moment and the emotion there, they made a decision that was wrong and they had a consequence from that. Emotions will make you abandon the truth that you know and we shouldn't allow ourselves to be guided by emotion. Emotion should not recalibrate who we are. Emotion is God-given. God gave us emotion, but it is an unreliable source of direction, and it's truly unreliable for a source of decision-making. What I want us to walk away today is understand that we have control over our emotions. Our feelings aren't true. It's hard to ignore the power of our feelings, our emotions. I mean, the world tells us today and encourages us to say, follow your heart, but that is wrong. The heart is deceitful. The Bible tells us in Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? The New Living Translation, let's put it in more English, says the human heart is the most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad it is? My point is this, we have to be careful with emotions guiding us. Jesus didn't allow emotions to guide him. Now, he did have emotions we see throughout the Gospels, we see affection, we see anguish, we see anger, we see compassion, we see distress, we see grief, we see gladness, we see joy, love, peace, sadness, sympathy, and tiredness or weariness. 
Jesus had emotions like us, but he had control of his emotions. He was directed by the Father. And if we want to be like Jesus, we have to be directed by the Father. We have to control our emotions. We have to guard our heart and let only God influence us in the way that we react. Look, this is hard. I'm preaching at myself. I blow it all the time because I react and respond in the ways that aren't honoring to God. I try. I pray, dear Lord, let the fruits of the Spirit come out of me today. And before I know it, something's happened and I'm not very honoring of God. And I have to ask for forgiveness. And that's what we do. But how do we do this? We have to walk in the Spirit. The Bible tells us in Galatians 5, and 23 that the fruits of the Spirit are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And when we let God drive our decisions and our reactions, peace becomes to blossom. We become more grounded in the Word. Our negative nature turns positive. Joy begins to fill our heart. See, when we compare our emotion to the Word of God, if the two don't agree, then the heart is deceiving us. And the Bible warns us of that. If we want to be like Jesus, then we need to understand that We don't respond in a frantic, anxious kind of way. We follow Philippians 4, where we're not anxious for anything. We put our trust in God. We allow our actions to show that. And then we're not driven by emotions, that we guard our heart like Proverbs tells us to do. And we don't rely on our feelings because they're deceitful, just like Jeremiah says. But look again at Jesus' response to what Martha said to him. In verse 23, he says, Your brother will rise again. And Martha says, yeah, yeah, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jews believe that there will be a resurrection and that everyone will rise. But Jesus says, again, he corrects her, even though he says, Martha, you're right, but that's not what I'm talking about. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? He looks at her and says, do you believe this? He's looking at you today. He's knocking on your heart today and said, do you believe this? And what does she say? She says in verse 27, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God who is coming into the world. But she doesn't really answer his question. She doesn't get what he's saying yet. As a matter of fact, if you look at the next verse in 28, she kind of slips out and she tells Mary, hey, you need to come see the teacher. He's here and he's calling for you. And Mary comes. And when Mary gets there, Quickly, she falls at his feet and she's crying and she's weeping. And she says, if you would have only been here, my brother would not have died. Again, we see the emotion that is driving them. And Jesus sees her and he has compassion on all the weeping that's going on. And the Bible tells us that in verse 35 that Jesus wept. And then there's those that are always the naysayers or the critics or whatever. In verse 36, we see that some of the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man we just saw in the previous chapters also kept this man from dying? And Jesus being deeply moved, he goes to the tomb and he tells them to move the stone. And Martha says, wait, he'll stink. He's been dead. His body's decaying. There will be an odor. The King James says, he stinketh. But we see in verse 40, Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took the stone away and Jesus lifted up his eyes and he prayed to the Father. Father, I thank you 
that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and his feet bound with linen strips. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. The last thing I want you to see, because I'm already out of time, Jesus alone has the power over life and death. Jesus alone. Muhammad didn't have it. Gandhi didn't have it. Hare Krishna doesn't have it. There is no religion where the leader has overcome death except Jesus Christ. Jesus alone has the power over life and death. And Jesus says that before he even did what he did with Lazarus. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And he shows this with Lazarus, and then he's going to show it again in just about a week when he goes to the cross. What we need to understand is that death is not the final say. Death is not a destination. It's a transition. We transition when death comes knocking on our door. We either go to heaven or hell as we transition, soon as death comes knocking on our door. 2 Corinthians 5.8 says, Yes, we are fully confident, and we would rather be away from these earthly bodies, for then we would be at home with the Lord. That's what the Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians, that we will be at home with the Lord when we die. As I prepared for this lesson, I ran across this quote from Billy Graham. Billy Graham wrote, before he passed away, about 10 years before he passed away, someday you will read and hear that Billy Graham is dead. Don't you believe a word of it. I shall be more alive than I am right now. I will just have changed my address. I will have gone to the presence of God. Sally Tony Evans posted on Facebook right after the passing of his wife. Just before the sun came up this morning, the love of my life, Lois Irene Evans, transitioned from earth and watched her first sunrise from heaven. Most of you know that my mom passed away this past year. She passed away in February the 10th. But she is now completely healed. That terrible sickness that stole her mind. She's completely healed. And we have the glory that we're going to have a sweet hello one day. It's the song we play here on WMER Radio is Sweet Hello. And it talks about that we have a blessed hope that we're going to see those that transition. Death is not a final resting place. It is a transition. In Luke 9, we see the story of the Mount of Transfiguration where Peter and James and John recognized Moses and Elijah. And even then, they had been dead for years. Peter and James and John didn't know them, but they recognized them. And we're going to recognize our loved ones and our friends. 1 Corinthians 13, 12 says, Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known now. That's the question my mom used to ask my dad. Will we know each other when we get to heaven? And the answer is yes. The Bible teaches that. In 1 Thessalonians 4.13, it says, And now, dear brothers and sisters, we want you to know what will happen to the believer who have died so you will not grieve like people who have no hope. We have that blessed hope because we know we will see them again. Death is not the end. It's the beginning of eternal life. The human soul never dies. It either goes to heaven or to hell. Hell was created for the devil and demons. It was never created for humans. The problem is we only go there if we choose to reject Jesus as Savior. As a matter of fact, 2 Peter tells us that. 
the Lord is not slack or slow concerning his promises, as some count slowness or slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to the repentance. In other words, God is slow before he passes judgment, so as many people that will accept him will accept him. He doesn't want anyone to go to hell. It wasn't, it wasn't created for them. And we also see that in John 3.16. What does John 3.16 say? Say it with me. For God so loved the world that he what? He gave his only begotten son that whosoever, whoever, that means anyone, everyone that believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So again, we see that God sent a way for everyone. Whosoever, whoever believes in him doesn't have to perish. We just need to believe in him. And so that's how I want to close this message today. Each of us have to make a critical choice about our transition. Do we believe in Jesus Christ? Do we make him Lord of our lives? And do we commit to follow after him or do we reject him? Today, have you accepted Jesus or have you rejected him? Let us pray. Dearly Father, I come before you today, Lord, and I stop right now and, and I Pray for the one that may have rejected you, Lord, that they would understand that the Bible is crystal clear, that we've all come short. We've all sinned against you. And the only way to overcome that is to believe on your final work on the cross that Jesus did for us and let his blood cover our sins. Lord, to believe on him dying on the cross and overcoming death so that we can transition to you. And we do that by admitting that we're a sinner, believing in his work, and committing to chase after you and follow after you and confessing you before men. Lord, I pray for the one right now today, Lord. Maybe they're not walking by the Spirit. Maybe they're allowing emotions to lead them. Lord, I pray today that they would take and just lay it at the feet of Jesus. They would say, Lord, just help me to die to myself daily and let your Spirit guide me. Help me learn to control my emotions and Lord, let me not be fearful or anxious. Let me be more like Jesus every day. Lord, we thank you for your many blessings. It's in your name we pray. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.